Like we said before, uh, we're doing the 10 series. It's week six. It's do not murder. Pretty simple. I would say that it's probably the lowest bar that could have been set. Um, so I'm sorry if I'm talking to a room full of murderers right now or that, um, you know, that's happened. Uh, pretty awkward because I just said it's the lowest bar that could be set. But, you know, accidents happen. Um, no, I'm going to get straight into it. I love the Bible verse that I'm about to read out. It's Exodus 20, verse 13, and it literally says, you must not murder. Pretty straightforward, pretty sick, pretty like no room for interpretation in that one. No little like, oh, well, if you look at it culturally in that time and then apply that, no, it's just don't murder, don't take someone else's life. And I find it really fascinating that today, in this day and age, at this time, we find murders so, like, fascinating and alluring. If you go on Netflix, you can just see that there's, like, 20 different, like, documentaries and films and stuff. Like, you've got celebrities like Zac Efron wanting to play serial killers and people wanting to watch movies, people listening to endless podcasts about it, like, some of the most famous podcasts, like My Favourite Murder or Serial, are all about these serial killers. Endless, um, yeah, like I said, endless products about, like, Ted Bundy. Like, I can name serial killers. How insane is that? John Wayne Gacy. O.J. Simpson, um, controversial. Um, but, like I said, our culture is so captivated and so allured by the idea of murder. And because I'm an expert researcher... I was like, I'm going to find out why. So I literally jump on Google and I just type in, why are we so obsessed with serial killers? And like I said, I'm such a good researcher that I just looked at like the top four results on Google and decided, yep, these are factually correct. Um, and what they say is that the two most common answers I read on the front page of Google was one, we want to understand their horrible acts. And two, we want to find relief in the fact that we weren't the victim of those acts. And like I said before, I literally just contributed to that, to that by saying, murdering, not murdering is the lowest bar that could have been set. And that's me saying, I don't understand how someone could do that, how someone could take someone else's life. And it's that comparison aspect, like, I could, never, oh, I could never live with myself if I did that. I could, never do, I could never do this. Oh, I can't believe how that person did that, things like that. It's that comparison. I think we carry that comparison in the same way in our Christianity. We're not, whether it's comparing our good deeds and our bad deeds with each other. Oh, well, at least I'm not as bad as Tom. Because, you know, you know what Tom did. And we're constantly... Comparing like, oh, at least I didn't do this. At least I didn't do that. At least I'm better than this person. At least I didn't do what that person did. And we're comparing our good actions and our bad actions. And I think sometimes we forget to actually look and examine the posture of our heart behind those actions. It's like, um, for example, having a messy home. And you've got, right, so you have a task that needs to be done. And the task is that the dishes need to be loaded into the dishwasher. Now, it's not normally your responsibility. It's normally some other party's responsibility. 
So the action is to put the dishes in the dishwasher, but what is the intent behind it? Maybe the intent in your heart is that, oh, I know the person that was supposed to do this chore has had a really hard week this week, like things just haven't been going their way. And so out of love, out of care, out of compassion, I'm going to put the dishes in the dishwasher, not bring it up, just do their share. Or maybe a different scenario is you think this person is being completely and utterly lazy, they should have been doing it, and you've had a way worse week than them, so you decide, I'm going to do the dishes, but I'm going to do it as loud as I can while huffing and sighing, and just like, you're like basically throwing the dishes in the dishwasher, and you go, and while you're doing it, you're also complaining that you're the only person that ever does anything around this house, and things like that. And you're not doing it out of love and compassion in the first scenario, but out of spite. Sure, the action is the same. The dishes get loaded in the dishwasher, but what is the posture of the heart behind it? And I want us to remember that today so we don't get distracted by thinking about the action of murder, but rather the heart posture behind murder. And that's because... Murder is the outcome of a heart posture of anger. I just want to pray for us before we continue, and we're going to get into murder and anger and the posture of our heart today. So why don't you close your eyes and join me in prayer. Yeah, God, I thank you for every single person that is tuning in right now. God, whether that's through a podcast weeks from now, whether that's um, yeah this Sunday, whatever it is, Father, I pray that you would be with them in this moment, that you would help us to be vulnerable, not only with ourselves, but with you and where our posture of our heart is today. God, I just pray that we would embrace the prayer that David prayed where he said, search me, O God, and examine my heart, that we would be able to do that. Not only today, but for the rest of this week, the rest of this month, the rest of this year, and for the rest of this series, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. I think it's really important that when we talk about murder and we talk about the whole idea of taking someone else's life, we talk about the value of life. And like I said before, murder is the outcome of the heart posture of anger. And I think that we can often think of Old Testament God as an angry God. A wrathful God, sure, God is angry sometimes, and he does have righteous anger, so he's always right when he is angry. But I think we forget that the God who gave his one and only son to die for us, the God that loves us so much, the God that created this world for us, is also the God that visits us in the Old Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I want to say that because... God, in his, the very first part, like the very first words out of his mouth, the creation account in Genesis 1, shows us that God loves all life and is so incredibly for life and life-promoting. The beginning of the creation account says that the earth was formless and empty. So to address this, God gives creation form. And he gives it the ability to sustain life over the first three days, creating day and night, separating the sky and the sea, things like that. And not only did God make it the earth capable of sustaining life, but he fills it and brims it with life. 
Verse 22 says he tells the animals to be fruitful and multiply. In verse 28, he makes humans and tells them to be fruitful and multiply. In verse 29 to 30, he gives us a rich variety of vegetation that serves as renewable sources of food. We can see God clearly loves life, loves his creation, delights in it, and designed the world so that it could be a place where we're able to have these renewable sources, where we're constantly being life-promoting. God created all life on purpose and with a purpose. In fact, he created an environment for us to flourish. And as soon as he creates us, he tells us our purpose. In Genesis 1, 28 to 30, it says, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given you every green plant as food for all the animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Everything that has life. And that is what happened. God hands us, human beings, the responsibility of nurturing life, ruling over it, caring for it, making sure it flourishes. We are to be life-promoting and life-nurturing just as our creator is. So now that we've got that in our heads, that God created all life, gave us purpose, called us to love life, nurture it, help it flourish, It's really interesting when we then visit the story of Cain and Abel, the first ever murder, through this lens of valuing life, through this lens of caring for life, through this lens of nurturing life. If you don't know the story of Cain and Abel, here's a quick little overview. Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain was the older brother. Um, He was like a horticulturalist, kind of, like a gardener, farmer. He produced food from the ground, whereas Abel was an agriculturalist, but basically just like a farmer with livestock and things like that. Um, And the story can be found in Genesis 4. So we get to Genesis 4, verses 3 to 8, and it says... When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. We can see from the story, even from the start, that Cain's heart posture wasn't in the right place. Sure, the action of giving God a gift was great. It was good. It was the right thing to do. But it wasn't the right intent behind it as he only gave some of his crops. 
Whereas we look at Abel, and Abel gives the best portion of his lambs. His, the action was the same, giving to God, but Abel's heart was in the right place. Cain's wasn't. God then accepts Abel's gifts and rejects Cain's, hurting Cain's pride and angering him. And in verses 6 to 7, with God being an all-knowing God, a God that wants to give us second chances, a God that warns us, guides us, looks out for us, he gives Cain a possibility of change, an opportunity to change. And he warns him that all his anger is leading in the wrong place. It literally says, You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. You must subdue it and be its master. And instead of taking God's advice, instead of listening to what God had to say, instead of doing the right thing and asking God for help, for forgiveness, to work on his heart, he ignores God and kills his own brother. This story has everyday ingredients that we all face. Things like envy, things like lack of responsibility, anger, refusing to listen, lies, deceit, all of these things that we encounter every day. And you might be thinking right now, I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, had people lie to me, had people deceive me, had people not take responsibility and stuff, but that's never made me want to murder someone. I've never murdered someone because of that. And like, same, very happy that you said that. Um, but here's where it kind of gets flipped upside down. Here's where we get given this simple commandment of like, don't murder, and you're like, sick, cool, can do that. And Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount then emphasizes on that and tells us about our heart posture behind this action. In Matthew 5, 21 to 22, it says, You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Thanks, Jesus. The bar was so low before. Could have easily avoided um, going my whole life without like accidentally killing someone. Or even on purpose, you know. Uh, but the crime... The problem isn't just the murder anymore, but the posture of the heart behind it, the posture of the heart that leads to it. So if the posture of the heart is anger, I wanted to break down what anger is. And so here are the two most common types of anger. The first one is visceral anger. This is the kind of anger that you experience when you like stub your toe and let out a swear word or when you get cut off in traffic or I don't know, when a waiter spills food on you, things like that. And it's just an instant anger, an instant, very little lag time between the action that caused it and the reaction that you give. We can work on this kind of anger, but it's not something that we can prepare for. However, the second type of anger that is a lot more common is meditative anger. This anger can be really, really damaging. This is the kind of anger that grows with time. The more we sit with it, the worse it gets. The more we feel it, 
We can work on this anger more easily because we can prepare for it and have time to process the narratives that cause it. Now, what's interesting about both visceral anger and meditative anger is that they're fueled by the same two ingredients, and that is unmet expectations and fear. When united, these two things ignite a strong emotion of anger. Now, if you don't know, um, my parents are the pastors here, so I've had plenty of stories told about me all throughout my childhood. Um, you probably know more about me than I might even know about myself, you know, because um, it's been shared so often. But today I was like, oh, I could get revenge and talk about, I don't know, an embarrassing time where one of my parents did something. But instead I thought, no, I'll bear the brunt of responsibility and I'll tell a story from my childhood. But this time you're hearing a story from my perspective, you know? Um, so this is a story from when I was about eight years old, maybe nine, but I'm pretty sure I was like eight. We had been living in Pukekohe for almost a year, not even yet. And when you move as an eight-year-old from like, I moved from Manorewa and so... It, like, it's a half an hour drive, maybe even 20 minutes, but it feels like a world away when you're eight years old. So I had kind of been making a little bit of friends, but I hadn't been at the school long. I think I'd only been there for about um, three months. And so I was like trying to make friends, kind of trying to be friendly, things like that. And anyway, anyway, so part of this process of moving schools and things was that my mum was still working in Monaco and she would take my brother to his kindy in Monaco and things like that. So when I was going to school, it then became my dad's responsibility because he also worked in Pukekohe to pick me up from school. Now, at the time, my dad wasn't the most organised human. He also wasn't the... He was pretty stressed pretty frazzled and not really, and like in a new job, you know, like excuses to be made for him. But he just was not on the ball. He would often forget this responsibility of coming to pick me up from school. So it wasn't a big deal because normally by like 10 past three, he'd get there. So, you know, it's a normal day. Uh, my dad's supposed to pick me up from school. I say goodbye to my teachers at three o'clock, say goodbye to um, a like, couple of people that I'm trying to like befriend, you know, and so... I'm in a kind of a vulnerable place at this school anyways. And so the last thing I needed was for my dad to forget me. Anyways, so <laughs> 10 past three rolls around. I'm like, oh, this is the normal time that he gets me because it like hits three o'clock and then he's like, oh, I gotta go pick her up. So he's never there before the bell rings, like all the really good mums and the good like dads and they're like parked in the car waiting outside the school at like 2.45. Dad was never like that. And so, it hits 10 past three, there's still some other kids in cars around. I'm like, oh, okay, like, surely dad will be here to pick me up today. Like, he's just running late as usual. It then hits quarter past three. And there's, like, not many cars and not many kids still waiting. And so I'm starting to get a little bit irritated because I had an unmet expectation. My expectation was my father would be here to pick me up at three o'clock, but let's be honest, my expectation was at 10 past three, and it was now quarter past three, and he still wasn't here, so I was like, okay, I'm quite annoyed now, it then hits 20 past three, and now I'm not just irritated, but I'm starting to feel a little bit of worry, 
There's no kids around waiting to be picked up. There's no other cars waiting to pick kids up. So I'm standing there all by myself. It's 20 past three. He's 20 minutes late. So I'm starting to get a little bit worried. Like, oh, he's, he might have actually, like, properly forgotten me now. We then hit 3.25. Still not here. And this is when my thoughts start to spiral. I've always been quite a dramatic kid. I'm quite a dramatic adult. Um, and so my thoughts start to spiral and I start to think of things because this worry has now turned into fear. So now I have unmet expectations and I have a fear. So now I'm starting to think things like, I bet if he was picking up Seth, my younger brother, he would have never forgotten. He would have been here on time. I bet that um, he's forgotten me because he's actually never really cared about me. Um, things like, my dad doesn't even care that I'm struggling to make friends at a new school. That he can't, he can't even be here on time to pick me up. He doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't even care at all. And so insecurity is setting in. I'm having these thoughts. I'm getting angrier and angrier. I have an unmet expectation. I'm now peering with fears a fear that I'm not valuable, a fear that I'm not important, insecurity is truly taking hold. And now it's 3.30 p.m., I'm still spiraling, still thinking these thoughts, getting angrier and angrier, and an office lady comes up to me and hands me a note. Now, normally you'd think, oh, relief, like, open the note, your dad's on his way, he's sorry, he's late, he's coming. Normal people... Probably normal kids would be like, oh, my dad hasn't forgotten me. Oh, that's good. And find relief in this note. This note did not give me relief. This note caused me more anger. And that is because my fear had now been legitimized. My father forgot me. Therefore, I am not important. At least not more important than his work. So my dad arrives probably about 335, 340-ish. And oh, I'm red with rage. My fists have been clenched for so long. I have like nail marks in my hands. I'm like white. I'm like, my face is like, you know when you're so angry that you almost start crying? That's like what I was like. And I was like, oh, and then dad gets there and he knows he's in trouble. And so he opens the door for me, gets my bag. I hop in the car and he's just like, I'm so sorry, I love you so much. I'm like, I'm having none of it. He's trying to give me a hug. I'm just like full-blown silent treatment mode. I'm like, if you, don't, if you ignore me and forget about me, I'm going to ignore you and forget about you. But being eight years old, um, when he promised me a bubble bill ice cream on the way home and as an apology, I was just instantly like, oh, you're forgiven, Dad. Um, <laughs> and I was instantly fine. <clears throat> Pardon me. But... Yeah, just because, you know, we love a bubble bill as an eight-year-old. The silent treatment quickly faded away, and I just told my dad about my day at school. Now, I thought, what if this had played out differently? What if my dad still showed up half an hour late, but this time he had um, got into a small car accident, and that's why he was late. He came off a little bit of a gash on his head, something like that, and he rushes over to me. He's like, I'm so sorry I was late. I got into a little car accident. I was trying to get here as fast as I can. I know that my anger would have ceased immediately and I would have been thankful instead that my dad was just okay. Maybe even feeling guilty for feeling that upset in the first place. And I wondered why that was and that's because my fear would have never been legitimized. 
We encounter unmet expectations every single day. Whether that's traffic jams, long lines at the supermarket, flat tires, small inconveniences that just make our day that little bit harder. Inconveniences that we cannot control. And these things, these unmet expectations, make us irritated, but no one is to blame. It is only when we feel threatened that we get angry. So I decided to ask myself, where do these threats come from? And in my reading of this really great book, if you haven't read it, there's a book by Brian Michael Smith, and it's called The Great and Beautiful Life. It's really great. It's really cool. It talks about um, applying the principles taught in, um, it's all throughout the Bible to our lives and living better lives that way, and it's really, really good. And this book talked about a thing called false imperative narratives. False imperative narratives are false narratives or situations or ideas that we believe and like believe wholeheartedly and create in our mind. These are things that cause us frustration, stress, and anger. And here are some examples. One false imperative narrative you could believe is I am alone. I must be in control all of the time. Something terrible will happen if I make a mistake. Life must always be fair and just. I need to be perfect all of the time. Each of these false imperative narratives are full of fear and the need to be in control. For example, a false imperative narrative that I struggle with often is that I must be in control all of the time. The fear behind this narrative is that if I'm not in control of things, then things are going to go badly. They're going to fall apart. And like I said, I'm quite a dramatic adult. And so when I'm spiraling, these, this false imperative narrative will form the words and the thoughts that I'm having. So I'll think things like, if I'm not in control of my work environment, then things will go badly, I'll do a bad job, I'll get fired, I'll lose my job, and then I'll be making no money, and then I won't be able to live, because I won't be able to buy food, I won't be able to live in a house, I won't afford it, I'll be a starving, homeless person, and eventually I'm going to die. And that's how, and the thoughts make no sense, but these false imperative narratives develop when we become fearful and we decide that control is the solution. But that is not the solution to our anger. The solution to our anger is that we need to change the posture of our heart. Like I said in the verse before, Matthew 5, 21 to 22, Jesus says, You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus understands that anger is a heart issue. That's his primary concern for us, not our outward actions. Hearts full of anger, hearts full of hate, are not far from hearts that would murder it's the same posture, just missing the action. And living without anger is something that feels nearly impossible, and in fact, it's something that we shouldn't do. 
There are times when we need to be angry because it teaches us and shows us that we care about injustices. But there's a difference between God's righteous anger and ours. God is always justified in the way that he expresses it, the reasons why he feels it. And we are humans, far from perfect, and more often than not, we get it wrong. But luckily, we don't have to deal without anger alone. Like I said before, we were talking about these false imperative narratives, and I was wondering how do we debunk that? And the clear thing to do is to look at all this teaching that is in the Bible, these kingdom narratives. They will show us that the false imperative narratives that we believe are so incredibly wrong. So here are the false imperative narratives that I've said earlier, so maybe if you identified with one of them, maybe a few of them. Here's the kingdom narrative Jesus teaches that I want you to replace it with. Instead of, I am alone, we need to believe that we are never alone. Jesus is with us always. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, The Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. Psalm 23.4, Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I won't be afraid for you are beside me. Matthew 28.20, I am with you till the end of the age. Instead of believing I must be in control all of the time, we have to remember that God is in control. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven and does as he wishes. Proverbs 19.21, You make plans, but the Lord's purpose prevails. Ephesians 1.11, He chose us in advance. He makes everything work out according to his plan. Instead of believing something terrible will happen if I make a mistake, we have to remember that mistakes happen all of the time, but things usually work out fine. Psalm 37, 24 says, Though we stumble, we won't fall. The Lord holds us by the hand. Romans 3, 23, Everyone has sinned, we all fall short. 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Humble yourselves under God. Give all your cares and worries to Him. Instead of remembering that life must always be fair and just, we have to remember that life is not always fair and just, but God gets the final word. Proverbs 16.11, the Lord sets the standard for fairness. Ecclesiastes 9.11, the fastest doesn't always win the race, and the strongest doesn't always win the battle. Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you've worked for him. And instead of, I need to be perfect all the time, We need to remember that Jesus accepts us even though we're not perfect. Romans 5.8, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. 2 Corinthians 12.9-10, I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. These kingdom narratives are based on the reality of the presence and power of God in our lives. When I take into account these kingdom narratives and change my thinking, rejecting false imperative narratives and embracing what Jesus teaches, what God teaches, anger cannot get a grip on me. I face many, many, many unmet expectations every day. But with this reality deep in my mind, deep in my heart, fear is not present and anger does not arise. We can either have control or we can have growth. 
but we can't have both. Well, I don't know if you could join me. That'd be nice. Thank you. I just want to read this verse to end. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, and the message says, Go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. This verse is saying it's okay to be angry. It's a part of life. In fact, the feeling of anger isn't wrong. To feel anger and tell someone that you're feeling angry isn't wrong. Talking about your anger is healthy. It's necessary. But when we allow the sun to go down on our anger, that's when it starts to poison us. Unexpressed and unresolved anger gives the enemy a foothold to work from, just like in the Cain and Abel story. Anger can easily be turned into resentment or despair. We can easily have these thoughts. Why do they always neglect me? Why do they always get what I deserve? Life is so unfair. Why even try? But we need to examine the cause of our anger. If it's righteous, good. Let that motivate you to do something about it. Let it motivate you to correct injustice. But if we're honest, the majority of the time, our anger is unrighteous and just a natural byproduct of the false imperative narratives that we all have to fight. But here is the good news. The good news is that in the midst of us trying to change, in the midst of us trying to progress, God still wants to work with us. Moses, Paul, David, these are all men in the Bible who were followers of God, who were used by God powerfully and wrote massive chunks of the Bible. And what do they all have in common besides those things? They were all murderers. But we don't remember them for this. We remember what God did through them. Change is slow. We have to remember to give ourselves grace. If God can use Moses and Paul and David in the midst of dealing with their anger, he can use you too. As long as we continue to rewrite our false narratives with the kingdom's narratives, we will see changes. 2,000 years ago, God gave his one and only son to be murdered here on earth so that we could be given eternal life. That death, that murder, allows our hearts to be transformed from one that hates and desires to destroy life to one that nurtures and loves life and wants to do everything that we can to see life flourish.